We want to thank you for joining us here at Prairie View Christian Church on Easter Sunday. As Josh mentioned, that's kind of considered the Super Bowl of the Christian calendar, in a sense. So we're honored that you chose to worship with us here at Prairie View. Um, As he mentioned with the connection cards, I do want to let you know that when you fill out a connection card, you are not signing up for anything. Uh, You are not signing up to get spam emails. You are not signing up to have me knock on your door when you're sitting down for dinner tomorrow night. You are not signing up to have something sold to you. Uh, This is strictly so that we can get more information about you, so that we can get a better idea of who you are, and so that we can better serve you today while you're here and in the future. So if you didn't fill out a connection card, if you're a visitor, I just want to really let you know that it's great for you to do that. It's great for us if you can do that. And uh, take it out to the welcome table at the end of the service. That's fine. Uh, Do whatever you can with that. But we are thankful that you're here worshiping with us. Uh, This is Holy Week, as Joshua mentioned. Holy Week, there are four big days that kind of make up Holy Week. And those four big days are Palm Sunday, uh, Maundy or Holy Thursday, and then Good Friday, and then Easter Sunday. And last week, we basically talked about the first half of Jesus' last week on earth. And the two days we kind of talked about then are Palm Sunday and Holy Thursday. Palm Sunday is about the entry into Jerusalem. Holy Thursday is about the day that Christ institutes the Lord's Supper and the day that he's arrested. And we asked a question last week in that sermon, and the question was this. If a fire swept through our building and we had no insurance, we had no way of replacing anything, and we just lost it all, Everything was gone. Chairs, microphones, guitars, speakers, curriculum, everything you can think of is gone. What would we have left to do ministry with? And the answer to that question is that we would have a story. We would still have a story to tell. We would have the story of Christ, and the story of Christ becomes our story. And it's a story worth telling. And we started last week looking at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. And he enters into Jerusalem, and he gets a pretty special welcome. He gets a king's welcome. People throw down palm branches on the ground in front of the donkey that he's riding in on. And that's not just any king's welcome. It's a welcome for a rebellious king. Because palm branches were associated with rebellion. And so when people threw down palm branches, when people called him the son of David, they were thinking that Jesus was going to ride in, And that he was going to overthrow Rome. That he was going to start a rebellion. That because he's the son of David, he's going to return Israel to where it was when David was in charge. When we were on top, we were in charge. We had the power. We had the wealth. That's what they're expecting. They're expecting some kind of national uprising. And that's not at all what Jesus has in mind. And he rides into town. And there's this weird little story where he predicts what's going to happen with the donkey. If you were here last week, you might remember that. He predicts that, hey, this is how it's going to work. You're going to find a donkey in this village. Here's what you're going to say. Here's what they're going to say. And here's how it's going to work. And we read that and we think, what's Jesus doing? Like randomly predicting the future. Like, is he trying to show off or what? And the thing we talked about is how when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, he didn't ride into Jerusalem as some unsuspecting, unaware victim. He rode into Jerusalem fully in control. He knew what was happening. He knew what was going to happen in Jerusalem. He knew there was a cross with his name on it, and he rode in anyway. He rode in anyway. So he enters Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple. 
That's one of the first things you did when you were a king and you entered a city. You go into the temple. And so he goes to the temple, but he doesn't just go in to make an appearance. He doesn't just go in to show his face and announce his arrival. He goes in and he immediately starts criticizing the temple. He calls the religious leaders all these names that he had never called them before. And it gets ugly. He's making some enemies. And his disciples are probably thinking, now wait a minute, we've got Rome to overthrow. Why are you getting our own people mad at us? But he does it. He calls them a brood of vipers. He calls them whitewashed tombs. He says these things that he had never said before. And from that point forward, the religious leaders are tired of him. They're wanting to get rid of him. They've heard enough from this guy. They've dealt with his insults. They've dealt with his criticisms for three years now, and they're fed up with it. But they can't just kill a guy who gets a king's welcome. You can't just kill a guy who everyone welcomed into town with open arms. So they start looking for a break. They start looking for that little break they need to get rid of Jesus. And that break comes in the form of Judas. Judas agrees to betray Jesus. Judas saw the shadows on the walls when the religious leaders were meeting together trying to find a way to get rid of Jesus. And he realizes that he can benefit from this. And so he goes to them and he says, Hey guys, I will give you Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And they say, Okay, you got a deal. And tell you what, when you find Jesus, here's what you're going to do. To let us know who we need to arrest, to give us the signal that it's time to arrest them, give him a kiss on the cheek. Give him a kiss on the cheek. Talk about a bad betrayal. Give him a kiss on the cheek and then we'll arrest him. And so Judas is sitting back, lurking, waiting for that opportunity to come, waiting for that right moment to betray Jesus. And it comes in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus is in the garden, and he's praying with his disciples. And Judas shows up with his band of soldiers, and he gives them a kiss. And what's funny is that we see Jesus say, do what you came here to do. He's still in control. Even now, Staring down at the end of a Roman spear. He's in control. He knows what's happening. Jesus had this all figured out. And he goes along with it. Now the disciples, they're thinking that this is our last opportunity to get our plan accomplished. Now we've got to save Jesus or else we're not going to be able to overthrow Rome. And so they take out their swords and they cut off a guy's ear. And Jesus says, now wait a minute. If you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And so Jesus totally cuts them off. He ends their plan to save him. And the plan's ruined. Disciples flee. It's over. The plan fell through. We tried to bail Jesus out at the last minute. We tried to make it work at the last minute. But he wouldn't let us. Here we have just another failed rebellion. Another failed Messiah. Clearly this isn't a story that they're going to be proud of, following this guy who gets himself killed. But the story doesn't end there. The story doesn't end with an arrest. The story doesn't end with a failed overthrowing of some empire. That, that's not a story worth telling. That's happened all the time throughout history, and none of us really know the stories because they're not worth telling. But this story is because it keeps going. So if you have a Bible with you, open up with me to Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. 
And we're going to have some passages up on the screen, so if you don't have a Bible with you, follow along on the screen. If you do have a Bible with you, share with a neighbor, find one under the chair in front of you, do something like that. Uh, it'll be really beneficial if you can follow along with us. So, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following them at a distance, as far as the courtyard of the high priest, And going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. It was over. It was one of those things where Peter's watching a train wreck, but he just can't take his eyes away. So he's watching. He's just waiting to see what's going to happen. He knows it's not going to end well, but he can't help but wonder how it's going to end. So he's still watching. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You've heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered, well, he deserves death. Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ. So Jesus is arrested, and he's taken before Caiaphas. And Caiaphas is the high priest, and Caiaphas does not have the power to crucify anybody. Caiaphas's title does not give him that power. He's basically just kind of the religious police at this point. And so they bring Jesus to him, and Caiaphas, he's with all the other religious leaders. He's not a fan of Jesus. He's looking for ways to get rid of him. And so what do they do? Well, they stack the deck against Jesus. They look for false witnesses. They look for false testimony. They're willing to do whatever they have to do to get rid of him. And so these people come up, and they make these accusations. But Jesus doesn't say anything. Like a sheep before slaughter is silent. Jesus doesn't say anything. He's got these false charges. And finally, Caiaphas says, you know what? Let's get past this. Tell me the truth. Are you the son of God or not? And Jesus gives an answer. But he doesn't just give any answer. The answer he gives is from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. And that passage says this. I saw in the night visions... And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed." Jesus knows exactly what he's saying when he gives them that answer. These guys would have known what Daniel 7 says. This was written generations earlier. And so when Jesus says it, that's why they get so upset. 
They tear their robes because they know exactly what Jesus is doing here. And the reason it matters is because they've been looking for ways to get rid of Jesus. They've been looking for excuses to kill him, and they haven't found any, but then Jesus gives them one right here. Because that passage says, I'm going to be the king over every other king. My kingdom is greater than all the other kingdoms. My rule is never going to end. And they take that as, you know what? That is a direct attack on Caesar himself. Because Caesar's the king. If Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not, as one theologian put it. And so they've been looking for these excuses to arrest Jesus. And Jesus just gives them one on a silver platter right there. He tells them that I'm the king and Caesar is not, and they immediately jump on it. They jump on the opportunity to get rid of Jesus. They have what they need. He said something that he cannot take back, and it's too late. And so they decide to take him to Pilate. But as Joshua mentioned in his communion meditation, Peter denies Jesus at this point. Right before he was arrested, Jesus said, Peter... I'm going to be betrayed. Well, he says that to all the disciples. And Peter says, what? No, you're not going to be betrayed. It's definitely not going to be me. I'll tell you that much. I mean, I'm with you through the end. I don't know about these guys, but I'm going to be there. Whether I have to die, whatever, I'm in it. And Jesus says, oh, really, are you? Well, I'll tell you what. Three times you're going to deny me. And Peter brushes it off. Peter doesn't think anything of it. And then here we are. Jesus is, Peter is following Jesus, waiting for the end. And three people in verses 69 through 75 come up to Peter. And they say, hey, aren't you with that Jesus guy? I think I saw you with him. And Peter says, nope, not me. You must be thinking of that guy. And then another person comes up and says, hey, I could have sworn I saw you with him. And Peter says, I don't know what you're talking about. And then finally, a person comes up and says, look, your accent, you've got one of those accents from Jesus' neck of the woods, so you must be with him, right? And Peter says, look, I'm not with this guy. Do you really think I'm with the guy who's about to get himself killed? No, I don't know him. This isn't my business. I'm just here to watch. And as soon as he says it the third time, the rooster crows, just like Jesus said it would. What we have here is donkey entry 2.0, is what I would call it. Because the same way that Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen with the donkey when he rode into Jerusalem, Jesus knows exactly what's going to happen with Peter when he's confronted with his allegiance to him. And sure enough, everything happens the exact same way he said it would. And it shows that once again, even while he's in chains... Even when he's standing before Caiaphas and standing before Pilate, Jesus is in the driver's seat. Jesus knows what's happening. He's not having his life taken away from him. He's giving his life up for you and for me. He's in charge. He knows what he's doing. He's in the driver's seat. Shortly after, Jesus is delivered to Pilate. But we also have this little passage about Judas's fate. Judas, he has some second thoughts on this whole thing. He has some second thoughts on his desire to betray Jesus. All of a sudden, maybe that 30 silver coins isn't quite as much as he thought it was going to be. And maybe it's not quite worth 30 coins to see an innocent man die and his blood be on your hands. And so Judas goes to the religious leaders and he says, look, I can't do this. Take your money back. He's innocent. 
I'll, I'll take the fall if I have to, but this, this isn't supposed to happen. And the religious leaders say, well, sorry, too late. He already said exactly what we wanted him to say. So there's nothing you can do about it. So take your money and scram. And Judas throws the money down. And he goes out. And he's so riddled with grief that he hangs himself. You know, Joshua mentioned Peter. We see Peter later ask for forgiveness. Judas, maybe he just couldn't stand the idea of having to go to Jesus and look him in the eye and say, hey, I betrayed you. Maybe he just couldn't handle it. His pride got in the way. And so he'd rather just die. And Judas is gone. It's a sad part of the story. Now we see Jesus before Pilate, starting in verse 11. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But Jesus gave no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now we talked about Caiaphas. Caiaphas doesn't have the authority to kill anybody. Caiaphas, that's not his jurisdiction. He doesn't have that power. But Pilate does. Because Pilate, he answers to Caesar. Pilate is in charge of this little territory of the kingdom, and he answers to Caesar about whether or not taxes are being collected, whether or not the peace is being kept in that area. And Pilate, he knows how these religious leaders work. He knows that they're selfish. He knows that they're self-serving. He knows that they're constantly threatened. He's maybe heard about this Jesus guy. And so he faces a decision. They bring Jesus to him. And Pilate knows that really this is probably just another one of the things where the religious leaders are scared and they're threatened and they're wanting to get rid of this guy. And really he probably hasn't even done anything. And so they bring him to Pilate. And Pilate kind of tries to find a way out for Jesus in a sense. Pilate's fighting this inner battle, it seems. He's fighting this battle between either A, I save this innocent man and cause a riot, and then I have to answer for, to Caesar as to why I'm not doing my job and keeping the peace, or B, I let one innocent man die, probably no one's going to notice, and I save my own skin. And so that's the battle he's fighting. And so in verses 15 through 23, he tries to find a way out of it. He says, all right, guys, look, here's the deal. We have this tradition. We release a prisoner. How about this? You choose either A, you get to crucify Jesus and Barabbas goes free, a dangerous criminal, or B, maybe you just take Jesus back and deal with it. Just deal with it. And he's thinking that maybe the guys will sit back and say, you know what? We really don't want Barabbas back on the streets. He's a bad dude. We, don't, we really don't want that. Yeah, Jesus made us mad and called us names, but you know what? He's better than Barabbas. And the problem is that they say, yeah, we'll take Barabbas. That's totally cool. And Pilate, all of a sudden, his plan didn't work. And we read in verses 24 through 26, when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, and remember, he's supposed to keep the peace, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Pilate had a feeling about Jesus. Pilate's wife had a feeling about Jesus, that this wasn't anything they needed to stick their nose into. 
This was none of their business. This guy was innocent. They didn't have a good feeling about it. But Pilate said, you know what? I've got to keep the peace. If I don't give in to these guys, there's going to be a riot. Therefore, I'm just going to give this guy up, and that way I don't have to face my boss. I don't have to face Caesar when things get crazy. So he gives him up. And he washes his hands of Jesus' blood. He's trying to convince himself that he's innocent. He's trying to find a way to get the rap off of himself. He's trying to find a way to not feel so guilty. And so he washes his hands and he says, you know what? I'm not the one who's going to crucify him. I just went along with it. It wasn't my business. I had no choice. Can't blame me. Well, Pilate would go down in history as the man who sold out and led to Jesus' death. But then again, at the same time, as we look at Jesus and how much control he has over the situation, Jesus knows what's happening. This is supposed to happen. This is what's going on. This isn't coincidence. And so Pilate delivers him over to be crucified after he scourges him. And scourging involved basically tying a guy up against a post and having some sort of whip that had like a piece of glass or a piece of metal on the end. And a lot of times they would do it 39 times because 40 was considered fatal. And so if you wanted to really punish somebody but not kill him, you did it 39 times. And after a scourging, Jesus would have been considered critical condition by our current medical language. He's already on his deathbed as it is after a scourging. And he's still got a cross to go. Verse 27, then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him and they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him saying, hail king of the Jews. They say, you want to be a king of the Jews? Fine, we'll treat you like a king of the Jews. And so they give him a little robe, they give him a crown of thorns, all very sarcastically. They spit him, they spit on him, they mock him, they smack him on the head, and then they lead him up to be crucified. Verse 32, as they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he wouldn't drink it. And when they crucified him, they divided his garments among them, by casting lots. So they crucified Jesus. And crucifixion was so brutal that it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. That's how bad it was. They wouldn't even do it to their own people, no matter how bad the criminal was. And typically what they would do is pretty accurate what you see in the movies and stuff. They would nail your wrists to a cross. They would nail your feet. And the thing that you would experience as you're being crucified is that because of the fact that you're hanging by your shoulders you have a hard time breathing because you're hanging down like that. So you can't really breathe, and so you're trying to push yourself up, but you're pushing yourself up on the nails and your feet. And so you're constantly going up and down. You're trying to push yourself up to get a breath just for a second, and then you can't stand the pain in your feet, and so you fall down again. That's why when people weren't dying fast enough, they would break their legs because then they couldn't push themselves up for air. So Jesus is slowly dying. He's dying a brutal death. You can just smell the pain in the air. You can just smell the tension. You can sense the blood and the sweat. It's happening. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. 
Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, whacking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others, yet he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down if you're the king. He trusts in God. Well, why isn't God delivering you now? You said you're the son of God. If God really desires you, won't he save you? And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So Jesus dies. The plan failed. It's official. He's dead. No turning back now. It's over. And it seems as though the same way the disciples gave up and fled, it almost seems as though Jesus himself is giving up. It almost seems as though Jesus himself might be thinking that, you know what, maybe the plan didn't work. Because he says, my God, why have you forsaken me? He feels abandoned by God. But even then, the same way that he cited Daniel in his answer to Caiaphas, he cites Psalm 22 in his death. Now, Psalm 22, the first verse starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And the psalmist is writing about how he's surrounded by enemies. And it seems like there's no hope and there's no deliverance. And he can't do anything about it. But the psalm doesn't end there. The same way the story doesn't end on the cross. Because the psalm ends with the writer saying this. From from you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. And even though it sounds like Jesus is giving up, he's quoting a psalm that is basically saying, you know what, I know my enemies are winning right now, but they're not going to win long term. God is going to deliver me because I am going to eat and I am going to be satisfied. I will be delivered. God will win, even though my enemies seem like they're winning right now. The people think that he's given up. No, he hasn't given up. He knows exactly what's coming. Even hanging on the cross, he's in control. He knows what's going to happen. But the other people don't. They think it's over. All these crazy things happen. There are earthquakes and tombs splitting open. And some people say, wow, this really was a big deal. This doesn't normally happen when you crucify regular guys. They know something different is going on. Looking at verses 57 through 66, we see that Jesus is buried. 
He's taken down off the cross. There's a guy named Joseph who lets Jesus use his tomb. And Pilate, he orders that there's going to be a couple guards there at the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, they help prepare Jesus' body the way they would have normally with a death. And they put the body in the tomb. And the guards are watching the tomb. And Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, they see the stone rolled in front of the tomb. So there's no base left uncovered. Jesus is dead, he's put in the tomb, the tomb is sealed, there's guards there watching. There's no way that any funny business can happen. Well, looking at verse 20, chapter 28, verse 1. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb, and behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning, and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he is risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings! Kind of a casual introduction for a guy who just got risen from the grave. Hey, what's up? So he says, Greetings! And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they will see me. All of a sudden, for Mary and Mary Magdalene, it clicks. It all comes together. They remembered those things that Jesus said. They remembered those times that Jesus had said that he was going to be crucified and buried and raised from the grave. It finally all comes together. Now, the chief priests, they hear about this. And obviously, they're not very happy about it. And so they pay the guards and they say, hey, look, guys, if anyone asks you why Jesus' body isn't here, tell them that you fell asleep or something and the disciples came and took his body while you were asleep. Find some excuse. The chief priests know that something has happened here. And they know that if people find out what has happened here, they're going to be in trouble because they're the ones who got him killed. I'm looking in verse 16. Now when the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age." Now, you might be thinking, okay, well, there's the end of the story, right? The story didn't end with an arrest, okay. The story didn't end with a cross, okay. The story didn't even end with a tomb. But it ends right there, right? Well, no. The story's still being written. To this day, the story's still being written. The story that you and I share, the story that we tell people as a church, the one thing that we would have last to do ministry with if we lost everything else, the story is still being written. 
And the beauty of the story is that Christ is inviting you and I, sinners like us, to be a part of it. God is saying, look at what happened to Jesus. If you're already a disciple, go out and make disciples. If you're not a disciple, become a disciple. And the end of the story isn't written yet because we wait for Christ to return. And when Christ returns, he will fully be established as king over creation. Things will be returned to the way they were meant to be from day one. Creation will be delivered. You and I will be delivered. We will experience the same resurrection that Christ himself experienced. And that's the hope that we have. And a story like this, a story that happens in history, if this story is true, it's the most important thing that has ever happened, ever, period. And so when you hear that, my challenge to you is this. You have got to make a response of some sort. When something like this happens, you can't just be apathetic. Look into it. Consider the story. Because if it's true, it's the most important thing that's ever happened. And it's still being written. And God is inviting you to be a part of it. When Jesus died on that cross, he took our sins upon himself. He took people like Peter. He took people like you and I. And he took those sins, he took them upon himself, even though he hadn't done a single thing wrong. He dies a rebel's death. He dies the death that we deserve. And because of that fact, we experience the resurrection that we don't deserve. We experience the new life that can't be found anywhere else. The story's being written. God is inviting you to be a part of it. God is inviting you to jump on board with what he's doing in the world right now. I hope you'll make that decision. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the story that you've given us. God, thank you that you have invited us to be a part of the story. And God, I pray that when we trust so much in our talents and our abilities and our skills and our resources, we'll always remember that the thing that we have is a story. And it's a story worth telling because we're part of it. What you've done is the most important thing in history. And God, I pray that those who follow you will take it seriously, take that charge to go and make disciples of all nations seriously. I pray that you'll give our church boldness to do that. And I pray that those who are not followers of your son will examine what's occurred, will examine the claims of the resurrection. Because there's no middle ground. There's no apathetic response to this. Either you're in or you're not. You're a part of the story and you're not. God, I pray that people, all of us, will humbly understand what it is Christ did for us. And that when everything else seems dark, when everything else seems hopeless, when we feel like God has forsaken us, that we'll remember that no, he hasn't. Christ is risen. And through that we have hope. Death doesn't win. Evil doesn't win. God wins. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. At the end of the service, we're going to have a couple of our elders standing at the side of the sanctuary. 
And if you have questions about our church, if you have questions about becoming a follower of Christ, feel free to talk to one of them. They'd be more than happy to talk to you and answer any questions you might have. So I hope that you'll take that opportunity to ask questions about the church. Maybe you have something you need to pray about. They'll be happy to do that too. And I pray that you'll make that decision to be a part of the story if you haven't already. Thanks. Thanks.